In the early 1930s, Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach funded a lecture series at the University of Pennsylvania, which has flourished to this day as the A.S.W. Rosenbach Fellowship in Bibliography. Nicholas Piquot delivered the 1989 Rosenbach Lectures, and it was the intelligent and imaginative idea of the Department of Special Collections in the University Research Library of UCLA to ask permission of the University of Pennsylvania and to beg the indulgence of the speaker to repeat those lectures at UCLA, which was done last week. It was my intelligent idea to do exactly what UCLA did. That was much easier. And as a result, we have Nicholas Pickwode speaking on the uses of bookbinding history at 130, 2.30, 4, and 6. You all have the look of diehards. I think you all know the schedule. We'll have a five to ten minute break between the first and second lecture, but a longer break after the second lecture and a longer still break after the third lecture between five and six when we earnestly recommend that you go take a walk before you get to the final lecture and the reception which follows. Welcome to Columbia, Nicholas Pickwode. Well, good afternoon, and I hope we're all here still at 6 o'clock. Um, I'd just like to add to Terry's introduction about the, the Rosenbach series uh, that I was asked to fill in for Anthony Hobson, who, the illness and subsequent death of whose wife sadly prevented him from giving the Rosenbachs in 89. And the Rosenbach committee very generously allowed me to present what was and will continue, I suspect, for the rest of my life to be work in progress rather than completed and finished work. Um, and in the course of these lectures, what I hope to do is to establish the subject as something worthy of consideration beyond rabid bookbinders, at least. Uh, could I have the lights, please? And if this the machine... Both buttons. Oh. Wrong machine. Well, I got the right machine. Is there anything in here that will work the projector? I haven't got it. Well, well we have a small delay. Uh, The title of the first lecture is Reading the Evidence, the Interpretation of Structure and Materials. My subject in these lectures is the practical history of the binding of printed books and how a better understanding of it might add a new and rather different dimension to our knowledge of the book trade. With few exceptions, I have gained my knowledge of the subject. Indeed, I should say that I have gathered my awareness that such a subject might exist at all from handling and examining in the course of my work as a book conservator many thousands of books from which process I've been made acutely aware of the great number of different ways in which books have been bound. 
From that, it is a very short step to asking why such a diversity should exist and what the variations might have to tell us about the conditions which gave rise to them. I will confess now that although my reading in the history and my familiarity with the practice of bookbinding is reasonably wide, I lay no claim to such an intimate knowledge of the history of the workings of the book trade. In writing these lectures, I very much hope that what I say will be subjected to comment and criticism by those better informed in that and other areas I shall touch on, and that this, in turn, will lead to a better understanding of the subject on my part. My experience has enabled me to put together quite distinct groups of books by virtue either of different methods of construction or of the different materials from which they were made. The task is now to investigate what those groupings might mean in a broader field than that of the simple history of the structure of books. A more critical mind might describe it as a way of trying to justify an obscure obsession with the mechanics of books, but I rather hope that it might prove something more. In saying so much, I should like immediately to acknowledge my debt to a man whom I unfortunately never met, Graham Pollard. His article, Changes in the Style of Bookbinding, 1550 to 1830, published in the library in 1956, remains not only the most compelling argument in favor of the sort of research which I shall be investigating in these four lectures, but almost the only argument in favor of such research. He ends with a paragraph which I certainly should like to take shelter behind, offering as it does both a defense for temerity and a challenge to everyone else. It reads, No one can see all the books, or notice everything significant in the books which he does see. There are exceptions to every generalization, and I hope my readers will not be backward in pointing them out. Any attempt to sort binding style into categories must start by being too dogmatic. We must have some challenging assertions before we begin to notice how wrong they are. I take cover. In the 33 years which have passed since then, little, with the notable exception of Bernard Middleton's pioneering A History of English Craft Binding Technique, has been published which either supplements or contradicts Pollard's essay. Much, of course, has been published about decorated bindings and the men who bound them, and every bit as much about their early owners, but very little about the bindings which are to be found on the books which most of us spend most of our lives looking at. That is, the everyday bindings, the bindings intimately associated with the bulk of the selling and reading of the books which exist in such vast quantities in libraries all around the world. It is, as Pollard realized, the numbers in which they survive which act as the greatest deterrent uh, to serious research into their history. Who is young enough and has sufficient energy to embark on anything so vast and so essentially difficult of access, or so foolish, should I add? Not only is there so little written on the subject, but contemporary references, when they can be found, are notoriously hard to interpret. As Miriam Foote has found in her recent analysis of some 17th and 18th century bookbinders' price lists, they use terms we simply don't know the meaning of. Even the few early descriptions of the art of bookbinding which have come down to us present problems of interpretation. For instance, the earliest account in English, with any detail at least, uh, a translation of Johann Comenius's Orbis Sensualum Pictus of 1658 is extremely misleading, as it describes German and not English practice. It is, of course, a translation of a German work. Uh, the sizing of the printed sheets hanging up on the line above the binder and the engraving here, common to most German accounts of bookbinding as a result of the inherent weakness of most German handmade paper of the 17th and 18th centuries, was not part of the English binder's practice. And the sewing frame and plough, shown in the foreground, uh, of continental rather than English design. So anyone reading this English account and thinking it describes English bookbinding will be seriously mis misled. The concentration of research, therefore, on the higher profile and so temptingly less numerous decorated bindings is consequently not only understandable but probably inevitable. 
The result, though, is a history of bookbinding, which occupies itself not only with a minute fraction of the output of bookbinding workshops since the invention of printing, but largely concentrates on its decoration than its construct rather than its construction. What is more, it is a fraction which is largely irrelevant to the economics of the book trade and, by definition, untypical of the great mass of work which actually put books into the hands of their readers. And that, I think, is the, the core to the history of the book business. The ordinary trade binder occupies an interesting position in the sequence which runs from author to reader. In the coming as he does at the very end of the production process, he is closest to the customer, who might be a private individual, an institution, or a bookseller, or any combination of those three. His work, therefore, would probably have been commissioned by that customer or on behalf of that customer, and is likely, therefore, to be able to tell us something about that customer. All we need to be able to do is interpret the evidence we find before us, simply said, but not necessarily so simply arrived at. And the evidence is there in abundance, and just one example on the screen. Uh, a bound volume of the issues for 1692 of the monthly Mercury. Externally, it is a conventional calf-covered English binding of the 1690s, raised bands on the spine and stiff boards. Inside you find confusion, confounded. Uh, it is in fact made up of three groups of the issues of the monthly Mercury, stitched into uh, three monthly gatherings. Those three monthly gatherings, you can see them here, one, two, three, four, are then held together by the alum tord thongs, stabbed through the inner margins, twisted together on the spine and laced into thin wooden boards, scabbard boards, another unusual feature for an English binding, the use of scabbard. This gave, these three alum tord thongs, gave the binder three raised bands on the spine. In order to bring it up to the conventional number of five, he stuck two false bands in between the existing bands, then covered it with leather and made it look like a conventional binding, which it is very far from being. So external appearances can be seriously misleading. And what is going on here is something much cheaper, altogether, if you like, more sinister in terms of who was paying for this. Um, and it is a clue in the history of the trade, if you like. Every book in a binding, especially if the binding is contemporary with the date of printing, is a bundle of evidence of this sort, but one which requires in its investigation an expertise which is not necessarily part of the normal equipment of the bibliographer. A practical knowledge and experience of the processes of bookbinding is an essential tool in interpreting the possible reasons behind the visible but mute evidence provided by the bindings themselves. Rather in the way that a paleographer will follow every stroke of the pen in attempting to decipher a difficult manuscript, so the binding historian will need to be able to understand each detail of the structure of a binding in order to understand the sequence which led to the finished book and also perhaps, and this is the more interesting bit, the motivation behind that sequence. Patience is also useful. The books one is looking at are not immediately distinguished in any obvious way, unless by their very ordinariness. Yet every time a binding is dismissed as being typical and of no particular importance, such catch-all phrases as contemporary calf say it all, the importance of the fact that it is typical is being overlooked. And there is always the question of just how typical are they in the details of their construction. Shelves of apparently identical books can prove to be very far from identical when you begin to look in detail at how they are made. In any case, where, apart from in the work of the authors already mentioned, Pollard and Middleton, can you find descriptions of the typical bindings of almost any period or country? Yet what body of work is more indic indicative of the state of bookbinding and its relationship to the bookselling trade as a whole? There is a process to which I am certainly not immune, and I guess this will come as a relief to those of you who are not looking forward to four lectures on the virtues of ordinariness, 
by which the eye and the mind after it is attracted once it is familiar with the territory within which it is working to what is unfamiliar. They stick out like monuments in the sequence. It is, as a consequence, far easier to find references to unusual bindings than to the far larger number of bindings which make them unusual. Uh, But it is, however, even harder to interpret them because the evidence is there in such quantity that it is just hard to encompass. Presented with something that we have never seen before, we are faced with stark options. Is it an aberration, something which the new apprentice did by mistake? I think the new apprentice gets blamed for an awful lot he wasn't responsible for. Is it amateur work, though this is a dangerous term and almost as likely to be misleading as provincial when describing clumsily made books? I can never see for the life of me why cities should not have bad bookbinders as well as country areas. Is it a novel and significant development which for some other reason was never taken further? Or is it, most excitingly, a rare survival of something once much more common? We will look in more detail at what I believe are examples of the last option in the next lecture. But it is now time to examine the process by which bindings can be interpreted as historical evidence. Firstly, I think that we must assume that archival evidence for the motives behind the use of different materials and structural methods of binding is going to remain sparse if only through difficulty of access, lost in archives not yet fully researched. Contemporary references often hint at the significance of different materials, perhaps by specifying different prices, such as those ordered for Edward VI's prayer book of 1549, which start with the unbound sheets at two shillings and tuppence, in foral at two shillings and tenpence, in sheep's leather at three shillings and threepence, and in paste or in boards in calves leather at four shillings. The distinction between paste and boards is presumably between boards made from paper or wood, the two commonest materials in use at the time. But we immediately have a problem in that we are not told what material the sheep's leather is stretched over. We know that fines were exacted by the stationer's company for the use of apparently inferior materials such as sheepskin on larger books, gives us another clue, and a reference to a James Robotham having bound 200 of primers in scabbards suggests a significant connection between a cheap book produced in large numbers a school book, that is, and cheap material, that is, scabbard. Um, The thin split wooden boards, rarely used in England on anything but the very cheapest books. Sadly, their very cheapness and the market for which they were probably intended, children, have resulted in few, if any, survivals, at least from the 16th century. Further research into surviving papers relating to the book trade may yet yield further hints, but all too often we are dealing with material which was so common that it needed little description in everyday business and was therefore passed by without much comment. The greatest single source of evidence will therefore present itself mostly in the form of the books themselves, bound in whatever way they may be, and any research will largely be a matter of arguing backwards from the end product. Firstly, some sort of sense will need to be made of the large number of books which will present themselves for interpretation. They will need to be divided into manageable categories, but categories which would make sense to their binders and which may not be categories which will make immediate sense to a researcher without practical binding experience and I'll look at this process in more detail in the last lecture. As I hope will become clear then, to state that a book is bound in vellum does not categorize it in any very useful manner, but to indicate, for instance, whether it is bound in boards with a tight back in vellum or in the Dutch manner, as used an expression from the 18th century English usage, with a hollow back, does immediately place it in one or other of two very distinct structural traditions with implications for provenance and date. An example of the type of confusion which can arise is to be found in the catalogue of a small exhibition of bindings by the Magnus family of Amsterdam, put on by the University Library in Amsterdam in 1967. A stiff-board vellum binding of typical Dutch type is shown, accompanied by the comment that another binding in the same style, but in green Morocco, is in the Royal Library of The Hague. 
It is not possible for a leather binding to be in the same style, except in respect to its tooling, of course, and that is what the catalogue entry is concerned with, and that alone. It does, however, imply a false connection between two entirely dissimilar types of binding structure. Unless one has the opportunity to work in well-documented historical collections, where the archival evidence can lead one to intact collections of books in contemporary bindings, and that is the ideal situation, but one which rarely presents itself, the desired categories will only emerge as the result of observation and not the other way around. That is, there is little sense in devising categories and then trying to find books to fit them. It's been done. It has been my good fortune, uh, and this is why I'm standing here in front of you, I imagine, to be employed at regular intervals to survey the condition of libraries all around the British Isles, and I found myself, as a result, quite unintentionally following precisely the routine which has allowed me to build up a picture of the different types of binding executed within particular countries, even towns and periods. Uh, the library on the screen is that of Blickling Hall in Norfolk. You will recognize the textile used on the sofas uh, through the rest of the afternoon on which I photograph many of the books. Uh, the process is essentially very simple. You have to look at every single book in the collection without any reference to any preconceived notions of category at all. And this is why a conservation survey is so useful, because that is precisely what you have to do. If you do not open your method to the reception of unknown material, you will simply tend to pick out only what you recognize and will therefore examine only that material which will support theories already formed. At least that is the risk. By handling everything, I simply start in one corner at the top shelf in press A and simply work around the collection from that point, the material will form itself into the categories that exist through the careful observation of materials, structural methods, and decoration. And I should perhaps say here, although I hardly mentioned decoration in the course of this afternoon's lectures, um, that tooling of books will perhaps remain an important and almost the most important single means of identification of bindings, however much I do appear to ignore it in these lectures. One is looking at the same time both for similarities and for differences, for what is typical of a particular collection, especially when dealing with historic collections, and for what is atypical, because that builds up the picture. Once the collection has been seen, it is possible to speculate on the significance of what has been seen. And I should underline here, and it will become, I hope, apparent uh, throughout these lectures, that the importance of preserving historical collections together is of paramount importance in extracting this this information. It is by comparison between books bound for one person within a short collecting span that one is able to get a sense of what was available at one period in certain areas. It makes life easier, I suppose you could say. I work also on the general assumption when I'm looking at the work of professional trade workshops, binding books in large numbers, either for booksellers or the general reader, that is, not for clients with idiosyncratic or elaborately decorative tastes, which places the bindings clearly outside the normal, that there will be good economic reasons for what I see. When, therefore, variations of material or structure present themselves, either between the categories which may have suggested themselves to me or within those categories, it is to be assumed that they signify something other than chance. Even allowing for the fact that accidents do happen, that workshops run out of particular materials and substitute others perforce rather than by choice, uh, that there are people doing different things by mistake, uh, variations will usually offer themselves as the consequence of conscious choice on the part of the binder or his client. It is the historian's task to explore that choice, working backwards, as always, from the hard evidence presented by the books themselves. The need to establish a date range for the variations observed will present itself most immediately, and it is a task which is not usually subject to interpretive difficulty. 
It simply requires accurate observation and some means by which the date of the binding can be established. With enough examples, it may be possible to produce a reliable chronology of binding types, and that obviously would be of great use. This is why Pollard called for datable examples of different types of binding, examples which could act, as it were, as date anchors from which to hang other similar bindings. It would certainly be an immense help if such books could be identified within rare book collections, and therefore one would have a core collection uh, which to first record, observe, and then find comparable examples to. The date of printing is not, of course, a reliable indication of the date of the binding, uh, beyond giving it an earliest possible date, uh, unless somebody's been messing around with something, any more than the place of printing is a reliable indication of the place of binding. Indeed, in the first century of printing, most copies of books printed in Latin for the European market are unlikely to have been bound in the town or city where they were printed, since that would not have made economic sense when books were distributed in sheets to save weight. There are various methods by which the date of bindings can be established starting with the easiest, the internal evidence. Um, that is, information gained from the binding itself in the form of ownership inscriptions and so on. Um, Lionel Tolmash, Earl of Dysart, had the engaging and very useful habit of saying where he found his books, when he had them bound, and in some cases even when he read them. And so the library at Helmingham Hall and such books as came from it are remarkably useful. Um, <clears throat> and then there is external evidence, that is, from account books, catalogues, etc., which will offer dates for books in specific collections. But these means will only date a very small, though extremely useful, group of books and will, give an and will give essentially random evidence. That is to say, such datable bindings will occur without reference to their position in the chronology of bookbinding and do no more than establish the date at which the individual bindings were made. Where this is especially early or late for its type, it will, of course, be of great value, but you'll need to have seen many, many more books to know whether they are early or late for their type, of course. Uh, and it will need many other examples, as I say, to give any indication of the period of popularity of that particular type of binding or material. Most other examples, that is to say most of the books that I certainly spend most of my time looking at, will have no such indication of date, especially when they are divorced from the collections for which they have been bound and separated from their contemporaries, knowing that a collector whose books may not necessarily have his name in but which survive still in his library, in his house, um, knowing that he died as Ellis, whose library is at Blickling Hall, died in 1742, is an immense assistance. Anything from his library, therefore, is unlikely to post-date his death. Um, posthumous book collectors are thin on the ground. There is, however, a surprising degree of precision to be obtained from a method which I call aggregate dating. And perhaps we could have the, the lights on for a second uh, at this point. Um, and you'll see on the board a chart, which I hope to explain. Um, I call it aggregate dating, but really it is little more than a refinement of the process described by Pollard in his opening paragraph, by which repeated exposure to books of different types will eventually suggest likely dates for those types. And this is simply a chart made up of examples of the use of a particular type of leather, a green-stained reversed leather, a suede-like leather, probably chamois, used on a group of books in Marsh's library in Dublin. There were only uh, just under 50 of them in all, uh, but they, when you fill out a chart like this, running along the bottom you have the decades covering the date span of imprints in those particular books from the 1550s through to the 1650s, and then up the left-hand side you have the number of copies seen. What you will tend to get is a graph which follows this pattern, and the ideal graph uh, would be very similar. At the beginning, at the left-hand side, in the latter part of the 16th century, you have books printed at that time bound at a later date 
by the collector or collectors responsible for putting these books together. That is, they had old books, either damaged or in sheets, which they were having bound up at a later date. You'll see there's a bump in the 1570s. That is simply a small group of books, uh, only three copies in this small collection, obviously. You will get aberrations. But as the binding, the date of the imprint becomes closer to the date of the popularity of the use of that material or style of binding, so the numbers will dramatically increase. And so you see in the 1620s, 30s, and 40s, they rise to a peak and then tail off very, very rapidly as soon as that material falls out of fashion and and something else supersedes it. But you will always get a few bindings carrying on, either because the binders are very conservative in their work and continue to use it in one or two places, or because individual collections wish to preserve a particular style of binding in the interest of uniformity within that collection. But basically, that is the shape you will get, and the more examples you get, the more precise and accurate you can be about the period of popularity. And so this is a means of dating books which have no datable evidence about data binding inside them or associated with them. It should work, um, and it has done in instances where I've been able to do it so far. The graph which is obtained by this process will offer a succinct, and if the sample is large enough, very reliable indication of the date span of a particular binding type. Most importantly, it allows reasonably precise dates for the styles to be obtained from bindings to which reliable dates cannot otherwise individually be attached. Could we have the lights off again, please? Obtaining geographical locations for bindings is a process which, taken book by book, is also often difficult to determine. The identification of differences between materials such as tanned leathers, which might give clues as to the place of origin, is a long way off especially as most of us are still unclear as to the correct identification of some of the animals from which the skins might have come. I do not know what beast this came of. What I do know is that two books in two different libraries, both printed in Oxford in the 1680s, are fa- I have found in this particular type of skin, this colour. It's an alum toward skin. You can see the white skin underneath the torn surface, stained to this mauvish, purplish colour, and there they stand. As yet, two examples is not really enough to construct a theory on, but there is something of interest going on there. Localising the manufacture of paper, the paper used as end leaves, or that is to say the paper used by the bookbinder, or to cover books in, is also of limited value, alas. Countries without a strong native papermaking industry, which have, would have had to have used foreign papers anyway, um, confuse the issue. Uh, And it's something which makes, for instance, the dating of the introduction of the technique of marbling paper into England very hard to determine, as the paper in commonest use during the likely period, the mid to late 17th century, is almost certainly going to be Dutch or French. So we're dealing with imported paper, and it could be imported at any time from any place by any particular binder. Um, The earliest date that I know of for marbling, which can be proved to have been executed in England, um, is on a book printed in 1669 and dated on the flyleaf, February 1669, by its first owner, um, in the library at Belton House in Lincolnshire. As part of the binding process, and the binding is most certainly English, the marbling could not have been executed abroad. I mean, it simply doesn't make sense to send a half-bound book across the channel to be marbled and then bring it back again. Added to which, marbled edges at this early date do seem to be associated with cheaper bindings rather than the more expensive bindings which would have had gilt edges or other colours and goffering and things of that sort. Um, And there is another book 
bound with the same type of marbling, a similar pattern of marbling, which was presented to Gloucester Cathedral Library according to an inscription tooled on the cover in 1670, the year of its publication, and another early example of English marbling. It is an example, in fact, where the, the book binding gives the clue to the date of the processes within it and offers us nice, hard dates um, from which we can start looking for other examples. Given that there was a wide European market for paper, however, one has to expect that papers from one country will often be used from binders of all countries. And I've actually seen a German papier used on a late 18th century Persian binding, so these papers could travel a long way. And whilst it seems reasonable to expect that the binders working close to a source of good paper will use that paper, the fact that other binders in countries many miles away may also be using the same paper invalidates its use as conclusive evidence in localising a binding. It can only offer supporting evidence, and we'll see an example of that in the third lecture. In the absence of documentary evidence, the process of localising bindings is very similar to that which I use for aggregate dating, and it is one that most of us will use, consciously or unconsciously, as we see more and more books. It is going to be most reliable when used on books printed in vernacular languages, and thus less likely to travel beyond national or at least language barriers. It is simply that one is more likely to find French bindings on French books, German on German, English on English, and so on. The comparatively small percentage not in native bindings, or those books which come either from collections largely formed by for, uh, of foreign works, bought abroad in sheets and, or temporary bindings and bound at home, or books bought from their home country by expatriates and bound abroad, uh, like the books, uh, for instance, of Michael Honeywood, uh, bought and bound whilst he was exiled in Leiden during the Commonwealth after the Civil War in England until his return to England in 1660 when he was made Bishop of Lincoln and in whose cathedral library his books are now found, will soon, these types of collection, where these aberrations, if you like, where you have the, bi the binding and the text from different countries, uh, will quickly establish themselves as a minority, provided one has documentary evidence to make it more easily accessible. And this is most easily done in old established collections formed within the country of origin and still preserved intact. And this, again, this the usefulness of these intact collections becomes very, very evident the more one goes into this work. Better still are those collections formed by a single collector, preferably not so rich that he would have had his books rebound on purchase, within known dates and whose books, especially those printed in his own locality, will provide a cross-section of the bindings available at that time. The preservation of such collections together to allow comparisons to be made and undisturbed so that structural evidence is not lost is an essential prerequisite of the sort of research that I'm engaged in. From such collections, it is not difficult to begin to identify national structural preferences, such as the tendency of binders in Germanic and Scandinavian countries from at least the early 16th century to use stuck-on end bands, and we'll be looking at that in the third lecture, and of French binders in the 16th century to use thin, double, alum-toured sewing supports where German binders would be more likely to use cord. It seems to me that such structural preferences are much less likely to be influenced by fashion than the decoration of the books themselves. Thus, the imitation of decoration may be revealed as such by the identification of structural details which do not correspond with the decoration. When Jakob Krauser, the 16th century German master binder, claimed to be able to bind in the French, Italian, and German styles, it is most likely that he was referring to nothing more than the decorative techniques employed, though different covering materials might also be associated with certain national styles. Underneath the covering, his bindings are much more likely to show their German origins. Thomas Bartlett, printer to Henry VIII, Henry VIII sorry, was almost certainly doing something similar when he described a book in 1542 as being bound after the fashion of Venice. Um, I suspect this referred to the use of arabesque tools in a certain pattern on the boards and possibly 
the inclusion of ties at head and tail as well as on the foredge, a very typical Italian feature which would ident- immediately identify a book as being in the Italian style. I will discuss a, an interesting example of this phenomenon in my third lecture. Similarly, it is worth noting that the German binder, Anselmus Faust, who worked in Flanders, refers more than once in his description of bookbinding written in 1619 to national differences in structural technique, usually referring back to his own German training. When describing endbanding, for instance, he introduces stuck-on endbands with the words, s'il voulait faire à la mode d'Allemagne, if you want to do it the German way, this is the way to do it. Um, and you find this remark repeated throughout the manual. Uh, the manuscript for that has just been published uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it's in the Plantin Moratus Museum. The reverse situation, finding binding techniques associated with one country on books quite clearly bound in another, is even more intriguing. I know of very few instances, two in fact, of 16th or 17th century English bindings with stuck-on endbands. It is simply not an English habit at that time and did not become common in England until well into the 19th century. This is from the 1580s and it serves as an example of, well, two things really. The stuck-on endband you can see here, the strip of vellum on which the thread has been worked, stuck to the back of the spine, it's curled backwards off the spine through damage, but is there at least. The book is a Bible from a parish library in Norfolk. It has lost its boards, it's lost its end papers, it's lost most of the leather on the spine, it's lost indeed most of its sewing structure. But even so, in its fragmentary state, it remains, in fact, a very interesting example of a technique which we might otherwise not know about. Um, And you therefore have the problem, how on earth do you preserve such material intact and as a useful evidence? The fact that it is so rare makes these instances of particular interest, suggesting quite possibly the work of immigrant craftsmen at a time when refugees from religious persecution were establishing themselves in England in sizable numbers. And it's uh, in Norwich, in fact, at this time, there was a very strongly established Dutch community fleeing from Catholic persecution in uh, the southern territories of the um, Spanish territories in the low, low countries. And this is a Dutch technique in books pr- bound in wooden boards. It is not entirely unlikely, therefore, that a Dutch craftsman might be responsible for this evidence to establish that. Obviously, is going to be a lot harder to find. Um, we do know that Flemish do- dominance, for instance, of the early 16th century printed book trade influenced English binders in at least the decoration of books, since some of the finishing tools were imported from the Low Countries or were copies derived from Flemish originals. Miriam Foote has done a great deal of work on this. But the, inter- the import- importation of binders themselves with different techniques is something a, r- a little different and something to which I will return in a later lecture. The Pierpont Morgan here in New York also have an interestingly international book printed in Paris, uh, Didos, 1796, and bound in London by the German immigrant binders Stagemeyer and Welcher at the very end of the 18th century. Unusually, even amongst the bindings executed by the large number of German binders working in London at that period, it has stuck on end bands, something which at that date an English binding would simply not have had, certainly not such a high quality binding. Um, what it shows to me is a German binder bringing with him a typically German technique and, as it were, giving himself away in the process. I believe that the earlier examples, the one on the screen and another one seen by Bernard Middleton, may well be telling us the same story. It also seems to me quite likely that the use of either worked or stuck-on anbands may help in distinguishing between 17th-century Dutch and German stiff-board vellum bindings, bindings which are otherwise almost impossible to distinguish. From an examination of the Dutch prize bindings in the Uh, Humanities Research Center in Austin, Texas, uh, which almost by definition will have been bound in the town where they were presented. There was only 
a small group of books with stuck on end bands represented within this very large collection, some 500 books in all. Um, and these were bound either in Dursberg or in Arnhem, both towns very close to what is now the German border, and therefore quite possibly influenced from a tradition across the border rather than from the vast bulk of the Dutch examples, which all have worked end bands. Um, much more work, of course, is needed to prove the validity of this distinction. But although I have seen two exceptions um, out of several hundred examined, um, that is, Dutch imprints with stuck-on end bands and therefore probably German bindings or German influence bindings, it does hold out the promise of a fairly reliable indication of provenance for otherwise anonymous material. It is supported by the insistence of the Dutch binder Dirk de Bray in his manual of 1656 that stiff-board vellum bindings should have worked end bands, whereas books in leather over wooden boards should have stuck-on end bands, an insistence that, which in itself opens up a whole new line of questions. Much of the identification of the workshops producing decorated bindings has been based on the analysis and comparison of the tools used on different bindings. It is, within reason, a straightforward and, if carefully done, reliable form of identification, except that one must always remember that in identifying the tool, you are not necessarily identifying either the hand which used it or the binder of the book on which it was used. Work over the past 50 years has shown conclusively that tools did not disappear with the death or failure in business of their first owners. They were inherited, passed on, or sold. Anthony Hobson, in his recently published book on early gold tool bindings, has shown that the tools used on the books collected by Francois Premier and Henri Deux at Fontainebleau were handed on from binder to binder and cannot therefore be used on their own to identify the individual binders employed by the king to create the library at Fontainebleau. At a rather less exalted level, I have to say, the sole surviving bookbinding workshop in Norwich uh, had, until recently, in its possession, a collection of finishing tools bought in from all the other shops in the city which had gone out of business. Even initial tools are no exception to this, and it may be only a complete change in binding technique that will cast doubt on the continuing, ad continuing identity of a binder in the absence of documentary evidence of cessation of business for whatever reason. The small fleuron bearing the initials IW, which you can see on the screen, always used at the corners of the single blind tool panel used to decorate the boards of a number of books bound in Cambridge in the last quarter of the 17th century and beginning of the 18th, could be taken to identify a workshop. They have been taken to identify a workshop. Though whether that of a binder or a bookseller who also ran a binding business or commissioned work from an independent binder is not by any means so easy to determine. What is confusing is that there is a large number of books bound in an exactly similar style which do not use this tool, which is the only easily distinguished tool used on the books. The other tools on the boards tend to be plain fillets or very simple decorated rolls, which are common to many workshops. The accounts for the Cambridge University Library of the period do not clarify matters. I hope that they might. They just made me more confused than ever before, in that they list books bound using this tool, along with others which do not, under binders or booksellers whose names do not correspond with the initials. However, a visit to almost any Cambridge library having books bound during the same period is likely to reveal many other exactly similar bindings, using the same colour of tan calf, sparsely sprinkled with a black stain in the same manner, with the same edges densely sprinkled with a red stain, the same end bands worked in blue and white thread over strips of split cane, uh, but without the same IW tool. Two possibilities at least present themselves here. One is that a number of Cambridge binders were binding in an exactly similar style. And this is not in itself an altogether unlikely idea, in that their predecessors in the late 15th and early 16th centuries seem to have shared a taste for staining their calf bindings pink. The lattice binder is one example. 
Um, another option is that a single binder, the as yet not identified IW, was occasionally working for a bookseller or was even subcontracted to another binder whose name alone appears in the accounts. It's a possibility. How do we find out? To add to the confusion, I have an exactly similar Cambridge binding with a tool bearing the initials TL. The TL man also does not appear in any of the accounts. The extent to which such tools of whatever date or country are likely to be those of a bookseller who may have handed over his signed finishing tool to a number of different workshops in turn if he lived in a centre large enough to uh, support more than one bookbinder, um, rather than those of the binder, is always, in the absence of documentary evidence, going to be hard to determine. But it is quite possible that there are types of workshop signature in the form of the distinctive use of techniques or materials which could at least suggest the likely answer. They will form these bindings into categories. Once you've got the categories, it may simply be the date of imprint which will give the game away. You'll find groups agreeing according to date, agreeing according to bills, whatever it may be. But it is structure that may give the answer. A further element of doubt over the usefulness of tools on the sort of bindings under discussion is the not infrequent custom, in England at least, of having collections of books decorated or tooled to match each other by a binder other than the one who may have forwarded the books. Several binders in England advertised the decoration of gentlemen's books as one of the services they offered, and what this means is that the spine tooling, and this is the area of the books most likely to be treated in this way, following a general trend in the latter part of the 17th century to reverse books on the shelves and arrange them spine outwards, is not necessarily by any means a reliable indication of the workshop which may have forwarded the books. Uh, what you see on the screen is an early 17th century Oxford binding redecorated in the early 18th century or late 17th century, um, again by an English binder, but most certainly not the binder responsible for the original uh, structure of the book. The clue is given here, if the style hadn't already suggested it, the hatching underneath the back stay used by the 18th century binder as a background for his girl is the hatching typical of early 17th century Oxford binders. Um, it's hidden, partially obscured, but it is there to offer the clue. Uh, and this was a, a cautionary note for a collection in the Clark Library in Los Angeles, bought from Ainhoe Park in England, um, where almost all the bindings share similar tools on the spine, but in fact come from a remarkable range of dates and places. As a collection, it is easily identified. As individuals, it would be much less easy to identify. Where the books so decorated are still together, therefore, within an historic collection, wherever that collection may end up being, the process is usually quite simple to identify, though sharp eyes may be needed. And another example here, a 16th century French binding, and what you've got... At the top, it's just a fragment of the binding shown only, obviously. At the top, you have the title of the book, tooled in the 16th century French manner within a gilt cartouche. Below, you have 17th or 18th century tooling, later 17th or early 18th century tooling, which is actually used in the centre to obscure the original tool of the French design on the binding. So this was bound and tooled in France in the 16th century and then over-tooled in England at the end of the 17th or beginning of the 18th century. The books of the 5th Earl of Exeter, still preserved at Burley House in Lincolnshire, were decorated by an unknown binder sometime before the Earl's death in 1700, and there are on the shelves bindings dating from the early 16th century with the same tools used on their spines. And as if to make sure that there would be no confusion, even the spines of vellum-bound books, as here, and Italian limp paper bindings, uh, bought on his grand tour, were painted brown and tooled with the same designs. Uh, this is research made easy, if you like. Um, by identifying the tools used, you can go right the way around the collection 
picking out those books which were so treated. It is quite possible, of course, that some of the books were actually bound by the man who decorated the spines, and a really careful examination of the books to pick up similarities of technique and materials should identify this man, if one ever has the time to do it. Such instances apart, however, books with those tools on them are likely to be the work of two distinct, if contemporary, workshops. This clearly has a rather worrying implication for books now divorced from their original collections and thus lacking easily accessible comparative material. What does become clear when looking at multiple examples of the standard commercial output of individual workshops is just how consistent the books from each workshop are when working within clearly defined styles. There are good reasons for this, especially when work was being produced in large quantities with tight profit margins, as would be the case in most trade work. Binders are always complaining about being underpaid, I know. Under such circumstances, there would be little room or reason for innovation on anything other than non-standard text blocks or special commissions, that is to say, fine bindings on the whole. For convenience of costing and production, standard procedures would be followed at all times, using only a limited range of materials and techniques. There would be no reason to vary methods for, from, for such simple processes as, for instance, making up end papers, lining spines, and lacing on boards, and very good economic reasons for not doing so. Research into books bound by the so-called geometrical compartment binder show that not only did he produce large numbers of perfectly ordinary gilt calf bindings uh, with gilt spines um, and a little bit of tooling on the boards, as you can see, uh, in addition to his better-known fine bindings, but that the techniques and materials used on them remain remarkably consistent. Out of some 60 or 70 examples of these I've now seen in different libraries all around the country, in England and some in this country, he uses the same colour of thread for the end bands in almost all of them. And it is an unusual combination of colours, uh, reddish brown and blue, um, very distinctive. In fact, when seen, further investigation tends to identify the binder. Rather than ending up with the end band, if you start from it, he actually is uh, at least indicated, the possibility is indicated by the colour of threads on the end bands. Um, I hope in the course of this research to be able to give him a name. The geometrical compartment binder is something of a, a mouthful. Uh, this indicates that books which show different ways of executing structural elements are likely to have emerged either from different workshops or from the same workshops at different times. This was certainly the case with the Oxford binders of the late 16th and early 17th centuries, the shape, colour and materials of whose dark calf bindings over pulp boards suggest their origins at a glance, though none of the materials they used was exclusive to Oxford, of course, but there is something about the shape and use of materials which is highly distinctive and then there are other features, such, of course, as the design of the blocks used on the boards, which will give positive identification. A similar family likeness is to be found in the Cambridge bindings of the late 17th century, as I've just shown you. Um, fashion would, of course, dictate changes in decorative design from time to time. Uh, there are basic patterns followed through from the early, 16th, early 17th century through to the late 18th century, which are repeated, it seems, by almost every workshop in the country. Um, but it is possible to see entirely different decorative designs on bindings which are otherwise, otherwise remarkably similar. Um, and therefore one begins to wonder whether in fact the different design has any implications as to difference of origin. There were also changes in the type of material used. Uh, the change, for instance, from the use of tanned and tawed sewing supports to cord on English bindings in the later 17th century. And such things as the shaping of the spines, books change shape between different countries and at different times. Um, but these will be much less frequent changes than the changes of style in decoration. Between these more fundamental changes, however, the structures of the books are likely to remain essentially the same. 
New apprentices would be trained in these techniques and would thus continue to use them until pressing reasons to change presented themselves. And I'll now show you a sequence of slides showing a particular type of end paper construction, which will be familiar to some of you who've come to my summer school classes. Um, 18, early 18th century English binders tended to use two sheets of paper folded together as an end leaf. And the first two sheets, or the last two sheets at the back, were pasted onto the board, and they cut back the sheet of paper underneath what was to be shown as the paste down. And there are simply different ways in which they did this, and as I talk, I'll show you a selection of these. It is therefore quite possible to think in terms of identifying techniques which will be specific to certain workshops, though they might obviously be shared by more than one. The more eccentric they are, the more likely it is that they could, have, they could be taken as some form of workshop signature and if not used as sole evidence for the identification of a particular workshop, could certainly supply convincing, supporting evidence for such an ascription. Of those examples you've just seen, I believe it is almost inconceivable that they could have emerged from the same pair of hands within a production situation. They would be churning them out the same all the time, and therefore they can act as some form, if not of actual signature, at least, as I say, of indication and supporting evidence for ascribing bindings to particular workshops. The major and most significant agent for change in structure or binding materials would be the continual pressure to reduce costs and speed up the binding process so as to compete effectively both with other binders and with the ever-increasing output of the presses, though the introduction of new materials, materials would also play its part. The history of trade binding from the end of the Middle Ages, that is to say the, the introduction of printing, can be understood quite simply as the continuing process of yielding up quality to higher productivity. And it is important to recognize the steps which identify this progression if we are to understand the development of the trade. I will look in greater detail at some of these points in my next lecture and at the difficulties of their interpretation, but they are vital clues in determining the direction taken by the binding trade from the beginning of the 16th century. It is only by the process of identifying and understanding the variety of the bindings which have survived that we will ever be able to understand exactly what binders were doing and then perhaps to work out why and where they were doing it that this is more than an exercise in the simple history of a craft and that it does have implications for the wider history of the book and the book trade, I hope to show in the next two lectures by looking in some detail at specific examples. Thank you.